Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. In today's audio-visual extravaganza, we will be featuring... Wait, it's it's not an audio-visual extravaganza, just audio? Wait, what is what is that camera over there for? It's, it's a government camera? For what? What are they doing? Tracking me? Oh, that's, that's not good. So, anyways, in today's audio extravaganza, we will be featuring the Tier 7 U.S. Navy Heavy Cruiser USS New Orleans. But before we get to the discussion about USS New Orleans, I want to mention one thing that was in World of Warships, or is being introduced into World of Warships, and that is German carriers. German aircraft carriers are being introduced into World of Warships as kind of the latest of Wargaming's paper ships, or so-called paper ships, uh, that are being introduced to World of Warships because they never actually existed. There's just simply designs taken off paper, that are kind of expanded into what they may have looked like if they were actually produced as a ship. Now that's not necessarily bad in some cases, as you know in the Montana class of US battleships, because they were drafted, there was actually a full or a scale model completed of them to demonstrate the design factors that they would have to negotiate, and they were under construction. But they were converted into aircraft carriers because the U.S. realized that a battleship is not necessarily going to be used anymore. Versus the Soviet ships, most of those were just kind of a drawing on a, a cocktail napkin that some Soviet engineer had in a bar when he was drunk. Well, maybe not drunk, but in a bar. Um, so they never really existed. Wargames actually had to name some of the ships something that they think that would have ha had been named. So, Moscow, for example, was never named. It was just kind of given a generic name that Wargaming think that the Russian Navy might have given them. Or you can look at the Graf Zeppelin, the only German carrier that has been introduced into the game, or fully introduced to the game so far. And that was actually launched. The ship was launched and it was being uh, fitted out to go into the sea for trials, but it never materialized because Germany had far bigger problems, namely the Soviet army encroaching on their boundaries and capital. But it actually existed, it actually was built, and it was never used, but it existed. Now you look at these German carrier designs that are being introduced as new German carriers that you can play more of them, they're kind of the coffee table design, they're just the fake I mean, they were actually designed, but Wargaming had to dive pretty deep into the archives to find them, which is frustrating because as someone who values naval history like myself, I find it hard to play against and even play those ships because there's really no historical significance to them. They were just designed on a drafting board, and while it's cool that they can make it come to life and, you know and have a second life, that's cool, but I really would like if they would use more real ships. And that's just kind of frustrating to me, that they just keep pulling stuff out of their butts and kind of dusting with pixie dust to make all the engineering problems go magically disappear as you can in video games and do it. Because these, these ships, most of them were designed in 1942, which is when... Germany was starting to be on the back foot. And then the last one, the Tier 10 ship, I forget what its name was. I haven't exactly done a whole lot of research on them, but they were. it was designed in 1945. In, in 1945, Germany was firmly on the back foot. They were firmly being pushed into their own country, which is no place for an aircraft carrier to be designed let alone be built or cons fully constructed. So Germany was never going to make that ship, in my opinion. I mean, they could have, but it had been a waste of steel and resources that they could have thrown at the Russians on the front lines. Not like that was going to be totally effective anyways. And that's pretty much exactly what they did, is they took the resources that was going to be used to design an aircraft carrier, which would be pretty much useless, most, mostly useless to them at that point in the war, and threw it at the Russians. I mean, they were still cut down anyways, but... It delayed the inevitable slightly. 
But enough of my disputes with Wargaming's logic on making money and just kind of milking the cash cow with a German lineup. Uh, let's get back into the American lineup to meet USS New Orleans. So an interesting note on the New Orleans class of cruiser was that it was originally called the Astoria class of cruiser after USS Astoria. She was laid down first, but delays in construction meant that she was launched after and received a later pennant number, uh, 34 rather than 32, then New Orleans, which is quite interesting. And as soon as Astoria was sunk in the Battle of Salvo Island in August of 1942, the class was subsequently renamed the New Orleans class of cruisers because New Orleans deserved it more, I guess. I don't know the Navy's logic, but it was renamed New Orleans Classic Cruisers, and that's how it's reflected in most history books and articles, is the New Orleans Classic Cruiser. But some history books, such as the one I have in front of me, haven't marked as being the Astoria Classic Cruiser. And Wargame actually has it marked as the New Orleans Classic Cruiser. Just an interesting thought. USS New Orleans herself was laid down on March 14, 1931, launched on April 12, 1933, and commissioned on February 15, 1934. She had a displacement of 9,950 tons standard and 12,400 tons full load. Her length was 578 feet at the waterline, or 176.1 meters, and overall it was 588 feet long, 179.1 meters long. She had a beam of 18.8 meters, or 61 feet 9 inches. She had a draft of 5.9 meters, or 19 feet 6 inches. And she was armed with nine 203mm, or 8-inch guns, each disposed three per turret, and there was three turrets. And she had eight 127mm, or 5-inch guns, each mounted in their own turret on the waist of the ship. And she had various anti-aircraft armaments, which changed throughout the war, so I'm not going to mention them. Machinery. She was equipped with gear steam turbines, eight boilers, and four shafts. The power was 107,000 shaft horsepower for 32.4 knots. She had an endurance of 1,900 tons oil for 7,100 nautical miles at 15 knots, which is actually pretty fast. And she had a crew of 751. And she had 76 through 127 millimeters of armor on her belt. Her deck had 32 to 57 millimeters of armor. Her turret barbettes had 130 millimeters of armor. That's kind of the shaft that goes out below the turrets. It holds the ammunition hoists and part of the magazines, which is why it's heavily armored. The turrets had 38 through 203 millimeters of armor. I believe the 203 millimeters of armor was on the face of the turret. The conning tower had 127 millimeters of armor, and this ship actually carried aircraft. She carried four float planes, and they were launched on two amidships catapults. I believe I forgot to mention that on USS New Mexico of a few weeks ago. Whoops. But back to the design principles of the ships. So, the New Orleans class of heavy cruisers was the last class of heavy cruisers that was laid down in the U.S. Navy in accordance to the Washington Naval Treaty's restrictions, and they were just essentially kind of tweaked Portland-class cruisers. And they had increased protection over the Portland-class of cruisers, but they lacked one very important thing. And that was survivability. These ships had their machinery spaces arranged in a different way than the Pensacola, Northampton, and Indianapolis classes of cruisers. Excuse me, I meant Portland, not Indianapolis. But their machinery spaces on the older ships were alternating. So they would alternate a boiler room and a machinery space so that if a torpedo hit any one of the rooms, it would not hit the same type of room on the other side. So... If you had a machinery space that was hit by a torpedo and they were both right next to each other, it's possible that the shockwave could knock both of those spaces out. So then you have 
two boiler spaces that are operational or two machinery spaces that are operational, but you don't have the other to run them or make them useful because a machinery space without a boiler room is useless and a boiler room that doesn't have anything to power is also very useless. So that's why in the Pensacola, Northampton, and Portland classes, those machinery spaces were alternated so that if a torpedo hit a machinery space on one side, it would hit the boiler room on the other side, and those two spaces would be knocked out, which reduces the ship's power uh, generating capability and the ability to move the ship through the water, but it did not co completely eliminate it, and the ship was able to keep radio communications with other ships, uh, internal uh, comms were still up, and you could still run the ammunition hoists and turrets but with the Astoria or excuse me New Orleans class of cruiser that was not the case they were placed side by side you think well why would they revert to an old method well that was because they had 900 tons of weight to spend on protection according to the Washington Naval Treaty so they decided well I mean we're gonna have to eliminate some of the survivability to put more protection on hopefully we won't need that survivability because we won't take the damage that we would need to use that survivability with because we have that extra armor however that proved to be not the case for three of the class which were lost in the Battle of Salvo Island in August of 1942, and most of them were lost for that reason, is they took a torpedo to the machine room, knocked out all their machinery, they couldn't provide power to the ship, and they sank quickly after that because they were sitting ducks. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the danger of it. But New Orleans was quite a different story as far as her survivability, or at least the damage that was taken by her. You can tell these ships apart by their shorter funnels because of those shorter, more compact uh, machinery spaces as we discussed earlier, and the fact that their masts aren't as large and bulky, and that's because there was electronics advancements that allowed for, I guess, less bulky electronics and the ability to put them in a smaller superstructure, which gave them quite a different silhouette compared to their predecessors. All right, so now let's go on to the history of the ship. For simplicity's sake, I am going to skip the pre-war or pre-World War II history of New Orleans, just because there was so many things that she did that were relatively boring, and that there was a large amount of things that she participated in in World War II, which made it particularly interesting and is going to be a little bit longer than there. So we're going to start out with the attack on Pearl Harbor because USS New Orleans was moored in Pearl Harbor when the attack took place. But here's the kicker. She was having engine work conducted onto her and was receiving power from the dock. So essentially, they had hooked like a huge, like beefed up version of an extension cord into the New Orleans to power her so they could work on the engines. But when the Japanese came, the power went out and there was no more power coming from the dock. So the New Orleans went completely dark. And that initially made the crew resort to using handguns and pistols to fight off the Japanese. You think, well, that's not good. They're just going to attack and bomb the living heck out of the New Orleans. Well, at the, that particular moment, the Japanese aircraft were too busy playing with their food called Battleship Row. And the crew of the New Orleans had a chance to work out ways that they could get the ammunition up to the guns. You'd be like, well, you can just carry it. Well, not necessarily. Well, you could, but why? Because the the shells are really heavy. They're 54 pounds each, and normally those are just simply put on a hoist in the magazine, taken up to the guns, and put in the ready ammunition storage. But the hoists were powerless. They, they, they're electric hoists, and there was no power, so they couldn't move. They had to be moved manually. And eventually the crew just resorted to simply kind of forming a bucket line and passing the shells to each other, which is not easy because that, quote, bucket is actually a 5-inch anti-aircraft round that weighs 54 pounds and the ammunition boxes the ready ammunition storage so the, the ammunition that was already right next to the gun was locked so the crew resorted to breaking the locks on the thing by any force necessary and they quickly ran out of shells so they formed those bucket lines as they said and it significantly impacted their fire rate because each shell had to be passed for each guy and you 
better make sure that you don't drop it because it's a 54-pound anti-aircraft shell, and beyond just stubbing your toe, it might go off, and that would be a ruining thing to anyone's day. And it was a miracle, but USS New Orleans suffered no heavy damage during the attack, although a fragmentation bomb did explode on her deck and injured several crew members, but other than that, it was merely scratches in the paintwork. So that was pretty much it for 1941 as far as the USS New Orleans was concerned. In 1942, she escorted convoy tr convoys of troops to Palmyra Atoll and Johnson Atoll. And um, if you take a guess, were the engines fixed by then? If you know the U.S. Navy, were the engines fixed by then? No, they weren't. She was only operating three of her four engines and still hobbled along escorting a convoy, which, honestly, what good is a damaged cruiser, or actually partially repaired cruiser, going to do against a Japanese attacking force? Someone at the U.S. Navy, please tell me what that cruiser's going to do against a destroyer attack, but whatever. Uh, she returned to San Francisco on January 13th, 1942, for an engineering repairs and installation of a new radar and more 20mm anti-aircraft guns. Then, on February 12th, she sailed as the commanding escort for a troop convoy to Brisbane, which is a city in Alaska for people who don't... City in Alaska? I meant Australia. Oh, man, those Australians are not going to be happy with me. It is a city in Australia. And then she screened a convoy to Nomea, some French atoll in the Pacific, and then returned to Pearl Harbor, joined Task Force, Task Force 11, and then met up with the aircraft carrier Yorktown and its escorting ships. These ships subsequently made up the force that participated in the Battle of the Coral Sea on the 7th and 8th of May 1942, and they won the battle, which kind of slapped the Japanese in the face. It was one of the first battles that they actually lost, and they essentially denied, just flat out denied them access to the sea, or cutting off the sea lanes of Australia and New Zealand. So that was a little bit of a slap in the face for the Japanese, but we did lose the carrier Lexington, and USS New Orleans was one of the ships that was rescuing her men, and her boat crews picked up 580 of Lexington's crew out of the water and transferred them back to that French atoll, which I cannot pronounce the name of, and... New Orleans then patrolled the Solomon Islands and replenished at Pearl Harbor. On May 28, 1942, New Orleans was screening the carrier USS Enterprise to surprise the Japanese at the Battle of Midway. On June 2nd, she rendezvoused with the Yorktown force once again and in two days joined the battle. Three of the four Japanese carriers were sunk by hit scored and dive bomber attacks, as I'm sure many of you know, and a fourth carrier was found and wrecked later, but unfortunately, not before her dive bombers had damaged USS Yorktown so badly that she had to be abandoned. And next is the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Yes, this is the third battle in a year that the cruiser has participated in, which is much more eventful than any other ship I think I've featured on this podcast. So, once again, the New Orleans replenished at Pearl Harbor, steaming out on July 17th to rendezvous off the Fiji Islands and for the planned invasion of the Solomon Islands, and she screened the carrier USS Saratoga. She fought off various air attacks and actually helped the U.S. Marines establish a beachhead on Guadalcanal, uh, presumably by firing, uh, providing fire support for them in the way of bombarding with her 8-inch guns. And she also turned back a Japanese landing group in the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Yes, more battles. Now, right now, you may be thinking, okay, so when's the last time that the New Orleans is resupplied? Because it's resupplied after every battle. Yeah, that's the catch. They didn't really resupply after the Battle of the Eastern Solomons, and now they're running low on food, which means the crew reluctantly have to go on half rations, which means 
which means, no, you may not have two servings or two cheeseburgers in a row. You have to go on a half ration, and your main course of meal is going to be spam. Yeah, I've never had spam, but it doesn't exactly have a good rap as being the ideal gourmet food. And yes, you're not serving gourmet food on ships, but you're usually not giving them only spam. So they also ran out of rice, which is not very good because that's a food that's often preserved and a main course of meal, I guess, even though they're battling the Japanese, which is kind of funny. Anyways, when the Saratoga got torpedoed by a Japanese submarine, they finally figured it was time for the New Orleans to escort her back to Pearl Harbor. They departed from the Solomons area on August 31st, 1942, and they arrived in Pearl Harbor on September 21st, 1942. So they were steaming quite slowly, but they eventually made it. I wonder if they were going on like a quarter ration. Was like, your food just... Here is your scoop of rice. Oh, wait, we already ran out of it. Here's your scoop of spam. Uh, can, can I please have more? What about those uh, oranges sitting over there? No, you are denied that. You either take the spam and you will like it, or there is no food for you. Wait, what dark sorcery is this? Why is there a British man on a U.S. ship? Uh, um, yeah, I kind of didn't think that through when I was doing the accents. Oh, well. <laughs> but anyways... Later in 1942, the Saratoga was finally repaired, and New Orleans sailed with it to Fiji in early November, then went to Espiritu Santo, um, some island near the Solomon Islands, with a population of approximately 40,000 people, if you didn't know. And she arrived on November 27th, and proceeded to return to the action in the Solomon Islands. Along with four cruisers and six destroyers of the U.S. and Australian navies, she fought in the Battle of Tassa Forgonga. For Tassa Faronga. Tassa Faronga, yes. Um, which occurred on the night of November 30th, 1942, and they engaged a Japanese transport and destroyer force. So, Minneapolis, which was serving as the flagship, was struck by two torpedoes and presumably lost power because New Orleans, which was following it, had to take evasive actions to avoid running into or ramming it from the stern. And in taking those evasive actions, she sucked on a torpedo, which landed in her port bow, I believe, and succeeded in detonating her forward magazines and gas tanks. And if you know what that means, it means that all that gunpowder and all those shells that are stored below the turret barbettes detonated and proceeded in blowing off the bow of the ship. The entire bow below number one turret was completely demolished and separated from the ship. It's separated from the ship, and as the ship's plowing forward in the water at, like, 20-ish or 25-ish knots crumples back to the side of the ship on the port side and scrapes alongside of the ship which opens up holes in the port side of the ship and then proceeds to sink and damages the port propeller which was just kind of insult to injury at this point you're thinking okay well this is just the end of the new orleans it is done there's no way it's going to survive this you'd think that and you'd be wrong because naval damage control efforts by the crew managed to keep her from sinking. They essentially just kind of blocked off the bulkheads in the forward section of the ship and managed to steam her to an island, stern first, and in which they covered her in a bay and managed to repair her enough to slowly, very slowly, like two knots, sail her back to cook uh, cockatoo excuse me not cockatoo cockatoo dockyards in sydney australia all the way from the solomon islands to sydney australia backwards completely in reverse i can't imagine that Does, could you imagine being at 
cockatoo dockyards in Sydney, Australia, just finishing your work on like an Australian ship or something like that, and just see this wreck, a floating wreck of a U.S. cruiser come in needing urgent repairs so they can get back to Hawaii or San Diego and repair themselves. Oh my gosh, I, I can't even imagine that. And you know what's better? Not only was the ship wrecked, it just completely crumpled into the front. I mean, I'd, I'd encourage you to look up photos of this. Battle of Tassaforgoya, or whatever. New Orleans battle damage. It's crumpled in. It looks like it just smashed into a brick wall at, like, I don't know, 100-something miles an hour. But they lashed it together with coconut logs. This The flooding in the ship was protected the ship was protected from flooding by coconut logs leaves and husks <laughs> talk about a bush fix you're literally using the nearest bush to repair the ship but the australians managed to fit a temporary quote-unquote stub bow onto the ship which is essentially just a kind of a little tiny that they pulled off some ship that was under construction and uh, welded to the damaged front of New Orleans in order to keep her from flooding further. So they probably had people who before that were routinely on uh, bucket shifts and pulling water out of the forward bulkheads. But they also fixed her port propeller. And what gets even better about this is they sailed New Orleans from Sydney, Australia to Puget Sound Navy Yard in Washington backwards at like 10 knots or even 5 knots or something. I can't imagine how long that took. Actually, I'll give you how long it took. They arrived in Puget Sound Navy Yard in like the middle of, I think, September. So yes, it took a very long time to get back from Sydney, but I just can't I can't imagine that. The fact that they even saved that cruiser was crazy. They're lucky that they weren't facing a battleship or a cruiser force because they'd for sure be on the bottom of the ocean. But I, it sucks for the people who are in the bow, but man, that's that's crazy. Anyways, all the battle damage was repaired and she was fitted with new air search surface search radars as well as many, many more 20mm and 40mm Bofors anti-aircraft guns. And her boilers, her machinery, hull structures were completely overhauled and made her almost look like a brand new ship. In fact, it pretty much was a brand new ship. But uh interesting thing is her back portion, her stern portion, was riveted onto the center portion as it was when it was built. And her uh, bow portion was welded on. That's an interesting difference. So it's kind of like a band-aid that they put on or a scar. Let's say a battle scar. There you go. Right? Isn't this saying uh, chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever? Well, they, yeah, that's pretty much the USS New Orleans for you. However, um, in the World of Warships section, don't expect her to be that tanky. You're never going to... Yeah, she's not that tanky. <laughs> All right. So on to 1943. And this was, a, I guess, a shortened year, or shortened action year for USS New Orleans, because she only came into Pearl Harbor on August 31st, and that was for combat training. So she then joined, after combat training, she joined a task force consisting of cruisers and destroyers that was um, supposed to bombard Wake Island on October 5th and 6th of that year, and they repulsed numerous Japanese torpedo planes and uh, bombers and various other aircraft attacks and she then sailed from Pearl Harbor on November 10th to fire precision bombardment or quote precision bombardment so I guess not battleships because battleships are inaccurate in the Gilbert Islands on November 20th and then screened carriers in the Marshall Islands on December 4th in aerial attacks of that day so airplanes coming after the new Lexington. Yes, there was another Lexington that the U.S. Navy built. Why? I don't know. And guess what happened to it? The new USS Lexington was torpedoed. Again. Or I guess not again for that ship, but a ship named Lexington was again torpedoed. And guess what the New Orleans had to do? It had to play babysitting duty and essentially cover the carrier 
back to Pearl Harbor, and they finally arrived on December 9th, which isn't that, that's only five days, so it didn't really take them that long to get back, but again, cruisers being babysitters, that's pretty much what they do, I guess. <laughs> so from January 29th, 1944, and for a little bit after that, the USS New Orleans was involved in taking the Marshall Islands, and just kind of general shore bombardment duties and carrier escort duties, and she very, hit various installations and shipping and uh, that was just an assistance of the Navy uh, taking Kawajalin. Kawajalin, yes. Kawajalin. J- oh, okay. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to try. Uh, and then she refueled at a place called Marjuro. I think that's how you say it. Marjuro. Okay. Go with that. And then she sailed on February 11th to join the fast carriers in a raid on Turk. Or, yeah, Turk. Turk. No. Turk? Uh, okay. Yeah, no. No, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm sorry, people who live in the Pacific Islands. I'm butchering names here. But anyways, the New Orleans and other warships essentially just made a circle around the atoll to catch ships that were on the other side, and they actually succeeded in sinking a few of them. They sank a light cruiser, pretty good, a destroyer, okay, a trawler and a submarine chaser. So uh, overall, that was a pretty good haul because naval gunfire was starting to, I guess, decrease in um, commonness, I should say. Like, it, there wasn't really any ship-on-ship combat or much, or as much as World War One. But they sank those ships, and then they essentially went back to the Marianas, uh, hit a few things there, then returned to Marjoro, and then uh, turned to Pearl Harbor. And then U.S. carriers, along with USS New Orleans, who was playing escort duty again, attacked targets in the Caroline Islands late in March. And then in April, again, and then they sailed south to support landings at Hollinda, which, according to my sources, says is currently known as Jayapura in New Guinea. And then on April 22nd, a plane from the USS Yorktown, which was had been disabled by an fire, sailed straight into the mainmast of USS New Orleans and sprayed gasoline all over the decks and killed one crew member severely injuring another. But the USS New Orleans continued to fight. And after that, the rest of 1944 was more or less just bombardment duties around the Marshall and Marianas Islands, and nothing really was that interesting. Just kind of patrolling, bombarding, patrolling, bombarding, maybe escorting a carrier here and there, shooting down a few planes, and that was more or less what the carriers, or this cruiser, did. However, she did participate in the Battle of Leet Gulf. I always forget how to pronounce the name. I know it's a really famous name, and I'm sorry for people who know how to pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Essentially, she just participated in carrier escorts. The carriers went ahead and damaged most of the Japanese ships, and New Orleans and several other escorting ships went ahead of the carriers then and just kind of mopped up the rest of the ships that were still afloat and fighting, and that included sinking the light carrier Shin Yoda and the destroyer Hatkatsuki, not Atkatsuki, Hatsuki, no, Hatsuki, excuse me, which was an Akatsuki-class destroyer, and Akatsuki is actually modeled in-game, but I'll be doing that ship on a later date. So I'd say a fairly successful haul, once again, for USS New Orleans. And 1945 was pretty much equally as uneventful. They replenished at Ulithi, and she essentially discarded carriers throughout the rest of the war. But in late December, she sailed for a naval yard overhaul, which was followed by training in Hawaii. Or actually, rather, that was an overhaul in late 1944. She trained in Hawaii, arrived in Ulithi again in April 1945, and two days later departed to join Task Force 54 when they invaded Okinawa, or actually the ongoing invasion of Okinawa, and she arrived in Okinawa on April 23, 1945. And she engaged in shore batteries and fired directly against the enemy lines, actually, uh, providing shore bombardment and assisting the troops in establishing a beachhead and taking over the islands. 
And finally, after two months on station, she sailed to replenish and repair minor damages in the Philippines and was stationed, or more accurately, anchored in Subic Bay when hostilities finally ceased in the Pacific War. Post-war was uneventful, as most U.S. ships had, so New Orleans went on August 28th, sailed as part of another cruiser and destroyer force to parts of China and Korea, and then she covered the internment of Japanese ships, so essentially the U.S. took control of Japanese ships and kind of just let them sit there, I guess. And uh, she evacuated prisoners of war, landed troops in Korea and China, and then she sailed to the mouth of Peking River uh, and carrying veterans towards the homeland. And she arrived in San Francisco later that year and carried more troops back and then kind of carried more troops from Guam and back. And then she finally sailed through the Panama Canal on a 10-day visit to her namesake city, which is New Orleans, Louisiana, or Louisiana, which is a state in the United States, if for those people who do not know the United States, possibly listening in a different country. And then she steamed to Philadelphia Navy Yard, and she arrived on March 12, 1946. And then she was finally decommissioned on February 10, 1947, and laid in reserve until 1959, specifically March 1st, when she was struck from the Naval Register, and she was sold for scrapping on September 22nd, 1959, and that was the end of USS New Orleans. But USS New Orleans was one of the most decorated ships of World War II. She received 17 battle stars for her service, and also received the American Defense Service Medal, the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the World War II Victory Medal, as well as five Navy Crosses, ten Silver Stars, one Bronze Star, one Air Medal, and 206 Purple Hearts. And the later six awards were actually awarded to members of her crew, but it just shows you how valuable this ship was to the U.S. Navy in World War II. As a matter of fact, Five ships have been named after USS New Orleans sailors that were killed in the action of the Battle of Tassa Fargonga, I think. So USS Rogers, USS Hayter, USS Foreman, USS Swenning, and USS Haynes were all named after sailors who were killed on the USS New Orleans. And I will be back after a quick message from this episode's sponsor, as much as you all probably don't like it. You guys have made it back for the second section of today's episode on USS New Orleans. Welcome to the World of Warships section of the episode. So, about USS New Orleans in World of Warships. She currently sits at Tier 7 as the heavy cruiser at Tier 7 for the U.S. Navy. By the way, all of my specifications are going to be stock configuration, just for those people who open up the USS New Orleans or unlock it and haven't upgraded it, so they can still get kind of a reasonable start on it. So it's going to have a pool of hit points that only amounts to 29,700, which isn't... It's, it's, it's only okay. Uh, her main battery consists of three or nine 203 millimeter rifles, each 55 calibers, Mark 14, each disposed in three per turret. There are three turrets. The reload time is 13 seconds basic, which is really slow. It's it's nothing impressive. It's the, I believe the second slowest at the tier. Rotation speed is a respectable 6.5 degrees a second, so that means 180 degree turn time of 27 seconds. It's really not that bad. Much, much better than the previous Pensacola, which has turned a turret traverse time almost that of a Japanese battleship. Firing range is a pretty respectable 14.7 kilometers, and if you upgrade the ship in top configuration, it will shoot out to 16.17 kilometers, which isn't bad. Maximum's dispersion is 134 meters. Not bad at all. It's actually quite accurate. That's what I like about this ship. Is, or at least my luck is it's fairly accurate. I don't really have any problems hitting anything provided that it's not moving super fast and is able to outmaneuver my shells. 
Chance of fire on target by HE is 14%. Maximum HE shell damage is 2,800, which I guess is only mediocre. What's really special about the U.S. heavy cruisers is their armor-piercing shells. So on to those armor-piercing shells. Maximum AP shell damage is 4,600, which is pretty good. It's got that super heavy armor-piercing. AP shell velocity is 853 meters a second, which is... Okay, but I mean these shells are still quite lofty. I mean they will sit up in the air pretty long But that's not nearly as bad as the HE shell velocity, which is 823 meters a second So those are even more lofty shells. Those are the hardest type of shells to hit Which is kind of funny because they're usually shooting at those shells at unarmored targets Okay, so the AP shell weight is 118 kilograms Secondary armament. Yeah, I mean it's a cruiser so it's not really that important, but you have a 127mm, 25 caliber, Mark 19, Mod 6 uh, rifles, each uh, in one their own turret, eight of them. Firing range is 4.5 kilometers, so it's it's okay. Rate of fire is equates to a reload time of 4.5 seconds. I mean, it's not bad, but I mean, you're just not going to use it that often. It's not really a brawling ship. I mean, no cruiser's a brawling ship. But uh, maximum HE shell damage is only 1,800. Initial HE shell velocity is a comical 657 meters. So, yeah, if you pointed a rifle straight up at the sky, essentially, and shot, these, that shell will get there faster than these shells are. It's just comically slow. Uh, chance of fire on target is only 9%, so it's not that great. I'm not going to go into the exact... Um, the AA defense, as far as the, the exact guns, just know that it's pretty good. It's nothing like Helena's going to get, but it, it's sufficient to defend the ship, in my opinion. Uh, especially late game, when if you haven't taken a lot of high-explosive barrage that have knocked out your anti-aircraft guns, it is sufficient to defend the ship. On to maneuverability. The maximum speed is 32.5 knots, which is... I mean, they're, they're slow. They're really... U.S. The U.S. Navy never really has anything that's that fast, other than their destroyers, but those aren't even particularly fast. The U.S. Navy's just not known for speed in anything, apparently, in World of Warships. Turning circle radius, 660 meters. That's not bad. Rudder shift time, 9 seconds. Also, not bad. Just It's not... Maneuverability is nothing great. It's... It's really not that great. I mean, it's really nothing to write home about. Uh, surface detectability range is 12.42 kilometers, which is excellent. That's for stock configuration and is the same in top configuration. But 12.42 kilometers is amazing. Air detectability range, 6 kilometers, and that's pretty typical. But 12.42, that means you're more stealthy than Miyoko, which is the Tier 7 Japanese counterpart for World of Warships which is pretty rare because Japanese ships are known for being very, very stealthy. So, what are the pros of the ship? I mean, there's not really any, many pros or many cons to the ship. It's just, it's kind of an all-around decent ship. It's, I mean, it's it's way more fun to play than Pensacola. Pensacola is like, uh, I would say, one of the most frustrating ships to play in the game. So it's a huge relief to see that something at Tier 6 is far better than that. Uh, she and that's because she has way more armor. She is capable of balancing like most cruiser armor piercing shells, assuming she's angled. But the bow armor is going to be overmatched by anything that has 15 inch guns or larger. So pretty much any battleship you're going to face is going to be able to overmatch your your bow armor and is going to possibly citadel you from the front if they have enough penetration, which most battleships do, especially at close range. Uh, this, it's got a solid main battery performance. The guns, there's really nothing to complain about. The the turret traverse is pretty good. The reload speed is, eh, it's okay. It's 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 really, it's it's unimpressive. Let's just say, um, but the firing range is is pretty good. It, it'll get you there. And the anti aircraft armament, as I said, it, it's decent. And concealment is. That, it's pretty amazing. You, you'll be able to sneak up on some people. And the armor, it is also a con as well as it's a pro because it's thick enough, it's thin enough to not 
to not protect you against battleship caliber shells, but it's also thick enough to arm battleship caliber shells. And essentially, for people who are new to World of Warships, that means as these large shells come through, if your armor's thin enough, they will go through the other side of the ship and arm on that side completely outside of the ship and explode there, causing minimal damage. In fact, in World of Warships, this model is only causing one-tenth of the damage that it would normally cause. But with heavy cruisers, that's not the case. Those shells go in and they stay in, and they arm and explode and deal massive amounts of chuck damage, which is why this armor is a double-edged sword. And most of the anti-aircraft firepower is centered in, like, like short-range anti-aircraft, which means that long-range anti-aircraft is really not going to do that much for you. And that's not good because you're not going to be shooting those aircraft down as they're coming in on their, or as they're sighting you rather than coming in on their attack run because it's pretty much too late once they get on an attack run anyways. And cons, yeah, that's definite con is the slow rate of fire. It takes what seems like ages to reload these guns when you look at the likes of Atlanta. And I guess that's an example of extremely fast reloads, but even Helena will embarrass this thing. So let's go over upgrades for this thing. I have my New Orleans in main armaments modification one for slot one, which is going to keep your uh, main guns more active and reduce the chance that they get disabled. Uh, and that's pretty much universal over, uh, over all ships. You're going to want to use that. I mean, unless you're a German battleship, but we'll get into that later. Uh, so main armaments in slot one. In slot two, this is where I start disagreeing with World of Warships, quote, optimal configuration. I have mine as damage control mod one, just because I absolutely hate getting set on fire, and even a 3% decrease in getting set on fire and decrease in flooding helps out. And you, you kind of start to notice the difference. In slot three, I agree with uh, Wargaming in that you should put aiming systems because the turret traverse, unlike in Pensacola, is pretty adequate. So, so improving the accuracy of the ship's shells is much more important than getting the turrets around faster, especially since in this gameplay you're going to be sitting behind islands more. In slot four, I have damage control systems mod two because that provides an enormous boost in your flooding recovery and your fire recovery times and that's also very important for this ship because the damage control is not like a russian battleship i guess russian battleships are special but it does have that long cooldown and that can be useful because you really don't have that many uh hit points to play with in this ship and you don't want to be losing them to fires Captain skills, I believe I've some of the modules I've equipped are or skills I've equipped my commander with is priority target, incoming fire alert, and I believe I have adrenaline rush on him as well. I don't have jack of all trades on yet, but I have superintendent, I believe, and I might have no, I have survivability expert. Yes, I have survivability expert for that. And uh, uh, it I've found it to be kind of useful, not super useful. I wish I would have taken something more like Demolition Expert, but that was a little while ago that I was taking these skills, so I didn't necessarily do my research as much as I should have. And once I get that fourth point, I am going to get Concealment Expert, because yes, you're going to buff that. Already really good Concealment and get that of the ship and get down even further. Just some of the things that I would recommend. Okay, so... What are some key points to playing this ship? Well, one thing is patience. You really have to be patient with the ship um, because you're going to be sitting behind islands a lot because of these lofty shells. They allow you to fling shells over islands without being, or with relative impunity and without being detected. And that's, that's pretty nice. But that also means that you're sometimes going to have a lack of targets to shoot at and you're going to have that sudden urge to go get that more damage. And don't be that guy who's just trying to farm damage out of every battle. And sometimes you have to play more towards your team. And that's what these ships, the actually all the U.S. cruisers strive for, is kind of um, implementing that team play aspect into the game and teaching players that. Because if you don't have good teamwork, U.S. cruisers can't really hold their own that well. And... 
Yeah. So it's best to have to sit behind islands, let your team spot for you, and just provide the continuous DPM, that damage per minute for them. And uh, just kind of farm cruisers and things like that. You're really aiming for those cruisers, though. If, a, if you have a choice between a cruiser and a battleship, and for some of you that may be an obvious choice, but some of you may still be learning, and that should be an obvious choice. Take the cruiser, because that super heavy AP will wreck them. It will wreck them. And you find it's kind of yourself kind of ineffective against battleships. This is that's really this ship's weakness, and that goes for the Indianapolis as well. Is that you, you have a lack of ability to deal with battleships. So, because I mean, because your HE is not great. It's really not not spectacular. So you're gonna find yourself struggling to deal consistent damage with them. I mean, it has good penetration, but it's just not that much damage. Against destroyers, it's it's reasonably good. And speaking of which, I would not waste my time with the defensive AA consumable. It's a complete waste of time. Aircraft carriers know how to bait that consumable out. It's really it, it's worth it if you switch that out for the hydroacoustic surge because then you could just charge the smoke screens with relative impunity. And while those HE shells may not do much damage to battleships because your rate of fire isn't that great, it will. It will do consistent damage to destroyers, and I've sunk many destroyers charging their smoke screens because they don't realize that I'm a cruiser that has equipped hydroacoustic search. I see their torpedoes coming, and I'm not going to fall for that old gag. <laughs> but, yes, patience. This is not an open water ship. Find islands that you can shoot over, and that is what I believe to be the key to success in this ship, USS New Orleans. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really enjoyed making it, especially since the ship was really interesting to research as far as that whole bow ripped off incident. But please be sure to visit my anchor page at anchor.fm slash rank dash amateur. That allows you to message me and suggest ships that you would like in future episodes, and it allows you to see all the platforms that my podcast is currently on. Although I'm having some issues uh, with Apple Podcasts, you can listen to it if you simply look up rank, colon, amateur, or World of Warships on Apple Podcasts. You should be able to get my podcasts there. This podcast is produced by me, it's edited by me, and my voice is obviously me. Our resident water expert is Drink Water. Our resident emergency physician is Izzy Bleeding. Our resident firefighting expert is Les McBurney. Our resident contractor is Les Schwinghammer. Our customer care representative is Hey Would You Buzz Off. Our Russian gas station tenants are Filitop and Topidov. Our resident landscape gardeners are Bud and Bush. And our resident author is Paige Turner. Thank you so much for listening, and please do subscribe to my podcast. And I will catch you next time, Captains.